That was like 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning when they came and got him. I don't remember who this lady was, but she came to me and told me, you know, your son looking to serve life in prison. I said, what did he do? And so she said, the third strike. So I ain't know nothing about no first, or no second, no third strike. And uh, every time I think about it, you know, I get so emotional. I knew he was going to get some time. But I didn't know that he was going to get life. How he going to get life? You know, he he ain't murder no one. People that murder people don't even get life. I hope that um, Obama look at this and uh, release him. 23 years. It's a long time for him to be locked up. And uh, I want him to come home and be with his family. Are we doomed to repeat the patterns of our past? So Alton Mills is a is a cool, cool guy. Um, and when I first met him, I would say that he skewed more on the timid side, or at least what occurred to be timid to me. But he's a guy who, once you meet him and you know him, you know, he will slowly step you into his journey. That's Maria Kim, who's a bit of an expert when it comes to recognizing and disrupting patterns. He kind of unveils his truth over time. Uh, I'll paint a picture for you. He was a high school athlete, a tremendous football player. He was being scouted by schools. This is a cool time for him. And then he busts up his knee. And so the trajectory for that was just like kaput, right? And he was, at the time, probably now in his early 20s, he's trying to help out around the family um, and realizes a way for him to do so is to get into drugs and drug distribution and sell. Maria has known Alton for a number of years. She's the president and CEO of CARA, an organization that helps people living in urban poverty find work. And when she first met Alton Mills, he'd already been through a lot. He gets convicted uh, not once, not twice, but three times. Mm. In 1994, Alton was arrested for the third time. And at the time, uh, we had a three strikes and you're out forever. Because of mandatory minimum sentences, the judge had no choice but to sentence him to life in prison even though the first two arrests weren't even serious enough to get him more than probation. This is when he was 25 years old, sentenced to life in prison, and had a baby at the time, right? Alton's six co-defendants, who were charged with running the operation, all ended up getting shorter sentences, even though Alton's crime was less serious. Here's Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. The federal judge assigned to Alton's case said, and I quote, if I were free to sentence Mr. Mills, it would be to something other than life. Judge Marvin Aspen called the decision farcical before handing down the sentence. It would end up being 22 years before the farce was fixed. So now he's in prison, he's growing old there, and uh, by the grace of 
uh, good fortune. I believe that at its heart, America is a nation of second chances. President Obama granted him clemency. With the stroke of a pen, President Obama cut short the prison sentences for 46 federal inmates across the country, making the case that their harsh punishments never fit their crimes. And just like that, Alton was free. But he had been incarcerated for 22 years and some change. If you asked him, he would know exactly to the day, right, when he was released, quite obviously. And he suddenly had to figure out how to live a life he thought was over. He went in at 25, came out at 47. He looked around and his daughter was all grown up, had a child of her own. Um, he'd look at all these weird devices that people were holding in their hand, and he's like, what the heck is that thing, you know? And so he began to rebuild his life 22, 23 years later. And he came to Kara. Today, we'll find out what happened to Alton after he got out and explore what it takes to rebuild a life that's been put on pause for 22 years. You know, here's a guy who needed a second chance, who had no work experience, or at least nothing that was beefy on his resume, um, who had a very interesting story to tell, but for some employers would be an awkward story to understand. And so he came to Kara not just to um, work his way towards employment, but also to work on himself, you know, as a new identity outside of the four walls of prison. I'm Jesse Batend, and this is Innovating Chicago Style. To me, that's the biggest transformation. It's like, what happens to a family when they're reunited? In, in the real, capital R, reunited. You know, what happens to the, that generation and the generations that will follow as a result? I was working in an insurance firm for about 14 years, um, in the end as the head of technology for that company. And then a little thing called 9-11 happened. Can you see God about 4,000 feet, about 5 east of your airport right now? Looks like he's... Yeah, I see him. That's another situation. Who, what kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow. Another one just hit it hard. Another one just hit the world fate. And um, when something like that happens, obviously you can't help but take stock. Like, mm. am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? If, if my walk around the sun is this fragile, right? Am I am I doing my vocation? I saved money for a couple of years, tried to figure out what do I want to be when I grow up, and came upon Kara. And it was this amazing combination of both um, mission real heart, and also business. Like, we, we don't like to be considered a charity. We're actually a social purpose organization really trying to operate as any other private enterprise. And so how are we using both the head and the heart in harmony with each other to help folks affected by poverty get back to work? And I was sucked in from moment one, and here I am 12 years later. While 9-11 was the event that would eventually bring Alton and Maria together, of course, Alton's experience of that day was very different. By the time Maria came to Kara, Alton had already been in prison for nearly 15 years. The day that he got sentenced, I didn't go because I couldn't take it because I knew he was going to get some time. That's Alton's mom, Marsha Mills, who's also the voice you heard earlier. Uh, I just took it one day at a time. 
Marcia says the reality of what had happened to her son took a long time to sink in. Ten years, actually. And in the meantime, they talked on the phone every day. Sometimes he called me two and three times a day. And I like when he called and said, hey, beautiful lady, you know, make me make my day go good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when they weren't talking, Marcia was imagining what it'd be like to have him come home. His daughter, Danielle, you know, she graduated out of college. So hopefully uh, he'll be home to see her graduate uh, out of nursing school. But, you know, he's going to stay here until he gets himself settled. Alton never gave up hope. He found an incredible, dedicated, talented public defender named My Angel Cody. She fought for a second chance for Alton. That's Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. He spent a lot of his political career pushing for criminal justice reform, including fighting to lower the much harsher penalties for crack cocaine possession, the drug Alton was selling. Crack cocaine was punished much more harshly than powdered cocaine, and those harsh penalties overwhelmingly affected black and Latino communities. Alton's story was right up Durbin's political alley. After learning of Mr. Mills' story and meeting with his family and attorney, I wrote President Obama in support of Mr. Mills' petition for commutation of his sentence. Last year, just before Christmas, President Obama commuted the remainder of Alton's sentence. Alton was out. And he eventually landed on what he wanted to do next with his life. He got a new dream. To be a bus conductor for the CTA. And while that might seem like a slightly modest dream, the road from prison to a bus seat is a lot longer and harder than it might seem at first blush. One of the first stops on Alton's route was Kara. In the first critical weeks of the program, we talk about things like love. You know, mm. we talk about uh, forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive in order to really focus on your future? And of course, Alton had a lot to forgive. Here he is shortly after his release, talking with Senator Dick Durbin. It took 30 seconds for people to come up with a a law that was completely unjust. Now it's going to take 20-some years for them to make it right. But what about the people that indeed over 20-some years in prison like myself You gotta be a church. Because there's other people like me on the inside. They got families, got children, and need to be home. (laughs) 
great organizations, no matter what side of the profit line they sit, right, are, are successful if they think about um, the dividends that they're returning. So in the private sector, it's about maximizing shareholder value. I'd like to say in the purpose sector, it's about maximizing dreamholder value. You know, like what is it that we're doing to make sure that people kind of blow up and blow out their dreams and vision out a new future for themselves and their families? Kara was founded by a Chicago man named Tom Owens. The idea was simple, and really it's all right there in the name. And so he named this organization Kara, which means friend in Gaelic, because his philosophy was, was basically, you know, we all need a friend in our greatest time of need, and sometimes people just don't have that person. And so in what way could we be that friend for people? All right, right on, let's be Kara. Let's be a Kara to folks in urban poverty. Coincidentally, when he was first starting the organization, Tom had some pretty influential friends himself. His uh, amazing friend tops the charts. It was then Mother Teresa. So he gets the chance to meet Mother Teresa, helps her in Tijuana, Mexico, to start opening some orphanages down there um, for children deeply affected by poverty, blown away by uh, Mother Teresa. Again, Tom, just to give you a visual, he's kind of the John Wayne of philanthropy. So six foot something, South Side Irish guy. She's four foot something, dragging <laughs> him around Tijuana. Can you imagine? And she's like telling him what to do, where to go, etc. And he is blown away by her tenacity and her fight um, uh, against global poverty. But he also comes home somewhat like, huh, like, I love that we did that over there, but what are we doing right here in Chicago? Where Tom landed was that the best way to help people in poverty living in Chicago was to focus on access and opportunity, while also making sure they were ready when the right opportunity came. And he realizes that there are so many people that are living in uh, urban homelessness and poverty that want to get back to work but lack the access and opportunity to do it. And he wanted to be a part of that solution. So it literally started in his car, driving from shelter to shelter, meeting people, mock interviewing them, getting them ready for uh, their days and interviews, and slowly building a program from there. And the way they do that is really interesting. I know I've been Oftentimes we come to life saying, I can't. I can't get a job. I can't stay clean and sober. I sure as hell can't speak in public. And then we add an extra dosage of having them sing a song. And people will be like, hell no, I can't sing in public either. There's all these I can'ts that are toxic in our brains. And And our hope through that exercise is let's dismantle the I can'ts. What are some of the most popular songs people sing? Yeah, right on. Um, Papa was a Rolling Stone. Uh, we actually we get a lot of like I love you, like the um, the dinosaur song or whatever. Barney song, <laughs> the yeah, Barney yeah. song. So I mean, we're all over the place. It's and it That's doesn't awesome. matter if you sing well. It's more that you do that which you think you cannot. And when somebody is in the middle of that circle, and all of these eyes are looking at them, and all these eyes are like, yeah, yeah, they realize I am a leader. 
In this moment, people are looking at me. My story has resilience. It has strength. I am a leader. A felony is a story in one word. This person messed up bad. Helping someone like Alton to believe in themselves again is already hard. And it's made harder when the circumstances of that release are so public and so political. A whole lot of people didn't think Alton deserved another chance to be a leader or rewrite his story. And some of them had really big pulpits. In 2016, then-Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions wrote an article. In the very first line, he accused Obama of abusing his executive power in an unprecedented, reckless manner and claimed that he was systematically releasing high-level drug traffickers and firearms felons. Sessions argued that the 214 people, including Alton, who were released were not so-called low-level nonviolent offenders, which he claimed simply did not exist in the federal system. To Sessions, the version of Alton that Maria and the folks at Kara knew. An amazing young man who now is celebrating his first year of employment at the Chicago Transit Authority. Simply didn't exist. How did it feel to finally get a chance to meet him? Yeah, I mean, he was a bit of a celebrity before he even walked into the doors of Kara. But the thing is, he he doesn't see it that way. Like, he's a guy who's creating a new beginning with his family. Just an ordinary guy with an ordinary story. That assertion from Sessions, that low-level offenders didn't exist in the federal system, and the fact that Alton very much did exist, meant that his story would be anything but ordinary. In fact, it would bring him face-to-face with the future Attorney General of the United States. So Alton is working his way through the program. And then in 2016... I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear... That I will... Alton's story became relevant again. President-elect Trump naming his choice for attorney general and drawing fierce criticism for it almost immediately. Tonight, Senator Jeff Sessions... Trump selected Jeff Sessions to be his attorney general. Even without the president's comments describing Mexican immigrants as rapists and promising a Muslim ban, Sessions' nomination would have been controversial. Republican Senator Jeff Sessions, the first U.S. senator to come out in support of Donald Trump, was a U.S. attorney in Alabama. So a quick update on Jeff Sessions. Back in 1986, Ronald Reagan nominated Sessions to be a federal judge. But at his confirmation hearing, things went off the rails pretty quickly. Allegations over his alleged racial remarks took center stage. Allegations that Sessions angrily denied then and now. You see, since 1986, Sessions had been pushing back against a story people were telling about him. I am not a racist. I am not insensitive to blacks. Mr. Sessions is a throwback to a shameful era, which I know both black and white Americans thought was in our past. He was brought face-to-face with things he personally had said. For example, that the NAACP and the Civil Liberties Union are un-American organizations. And I may have said something like that in a general way that probably was wrong. Sessions was a supporter of strong punishments for drug offenses, which blended in with the allegations of racism and came to a head in the most absurd way. Sessions also denied a statement that he thought Klan members were okay until he learned they smoked marijuana. This assertion is ludicrous. 
I detest the Klan. He went on to testify that I am loose with my tongue on occasion, and I may have said something similar to that or could be interpreted to that. Turns out even when they're based on things that you've done and said, even Jeff Sessions doesn't like mean stories people tell about him influencing his career. told CNN's Dana Bash in 2009 that the allegations of racism were heartbreaking. That was not fair. That was not accurate. Those were false charges and distortions of anything that I did, and it really was not. I never had those kind of views, and I was caricatured in a way that was not me. So back to 2016, and those stories about Sessions, they come up again. People have fairly promptly tried to label you as a racist or a bigot or whatever you want to say. At his confirmation hearing for the attorney general position, Senator Lindsey Graham asked Sessions about those stories. How does that make you feel? Well, it does not feel good. Before Sessions can properly answer, a group of protesters interrupt. If nothing else, I'm clearing the room for you. <laughs> there was an organized effort to caricature me as something that wasn't true. And it was very painful. But Senator Dick Durbin had his own questions about the story Sessions himself had been telling. And with your permission of the chair, I'd like to, he's my guest today, ask Mr. Mills if he'd please stand up. Alton, thank you for being here today. I'd like to tell you a story so you can understand my question a little better. Durbin launches into Alton's story and ends it by confronting the would-be attorney general. And you said of President Obama's pardoning of people like Alton Mills, and I quote, so-called low-level nonviolent offenders simply do not exist in the federal system, you said. Senator Sessions, Alton Mills, and many more just like him do exist. So if you refuse to even acknowledge the fundamental injustice of many of our sentencing laws, why should you be entrusted with the most important criminal prosecution office in America? He went on to press sessions about the other people, still in prison, still serving out mandatory minimum sentences. And when I ask you to join Senator Grassley and me in permitting the almost 5,000 still serving under this unfair 100-to-1 standard to petition individually for leniency, you refused. Sessions almost seems to take offense. Senator Durbin, I think that's um, rather unfair based on our relationship and how we work together. Sessions never commented on Alton's case, never corrected the record about people like him not existing. He didn't even address Alton in the room that day. And on the issue of the thousands of prisoners still serving out life sentences because of mandatory minimums, Sessions wouldn't commit. I did not agree, you and I did not agree on the retroactivity because a lot of these were plea bargain cases. We sort of left it open, as I remember. We did. You and I discussed it. Let me say, on the issue of fairness, I will acknowledge you stepped out on this issue. And now we have 5,000 prisoners sitting in federal prison still there under this brutal, unjust 100-to-1. And all I've asked, and all Senator Grassley's asked, allow them as individuals to petition to the judge, to the prosecutor, to the Department of Justice, 
so that their sentences could be considered. That's something you've opposed. So in fairness, tell me why you still oppose that. Instead, Sessions kind of puts it back on Durbin. It's not the attorney general's decision about when and where a mandatory minimum uh, is imposed and whether it can be retroactively altered. So I will follow any law that uh, you pass, number one. Number two, I understood the uh, sincere belief you had on that issue, and it was a difficult call, and that's why we really never worked it out. The part of the question that Sessions very clearly didn't answer was whether or not he thought people like Alton should get another chance. And the suggestion that he would follow any laws the legislature passed was a particularly obvious dodge, considering what had happened just one year before. In 2015, both the House and the Senate approved a bill that would retroactively apply the Fair Sentencing Act to some cases where prisoners were serving out mandatory minimum sentences. According to a story in the Washington Post, Quote, election season politics and demagoguery from a handful of Republicans, including then-Senator Jeff Sessions, doomed the bill. Which means if Obama hadn't commuted his sentence, Alton could very well still be in prison today. Maybe it's not a surprise where things ended, considering how many competing narratives there were and the fact that America elected a president that promised to be tough on crime. In the end, the stories only did so much. Jeff Sessions was confirmed, Alton went back to being a CTA bus driver, and thousands of prisoners continued serving out mandatory minimums, leaving people like Maria and the folks at CARA the very difficult task of trying to figure out how to get people to ignore all the noise, how to pick the right narrative for themselves, one with new patterns. CARA believed in me until I could believe in myself. I love hearing that because you're right. We need to have people who see in us things that we don't readily see yet. And then once we start to believe that, OMG, how how the doors open. In the meantime, all Maria can do is tell her own story. I'd say to an employer like, hey, you know, our one year job retention rates outpace national norms by over 20 points. And wait for people to notice. I'm thinking of a woman in our program right now. Her name is Opal, and she lives in a shelter. And she lives in the kind of shelter where you have to put all your stuff uh, in your duffel or whatever, and, you know, like you're kind of protecting your stuff. And so when she first came into the community, you can imagine here's a person who is very used to protecting myself. Now we're saying, like, get uncomfortable, plug into this group. It's going to be fabulous. Your bestie is right around the corner. And she is like, no, you know. And I think what I learned from that moment is that our job really is to seek first to understand, you know, mm-hmm. where what is the space from which this person is coming from? And so as staff, I think that our job is more locksmith than trainer. And it becomes this more, this is objective of the asset is already inside Opal. My job is to be like all detective and sleuth-like and figure out how I'm going to unlock it and get at it. It's not that I'm going to impart some wisdom on her. She's got it right up in there. And how do I unearth that and then maybe give her some extra skills on top to make her rocket in an interview? This might be too on the nose, but like that picture is very, very clear of like you can't just jam something into a lock like the key's got to fit. Yeah. And so your job is really to like take a look at what's inside and yeah. figure out... <laughs> exactly what it takes to it's beautiful open it's a, it up 
Innovating Chicago Style is brought to you by Chicago Innovation and Rivet. Thank you to my guest this week, Maria Kim with Kara. Find out more about the work they do at karaschicago.org. Special thanks to Alton and Marsha Mills, as well as Kara's Mark Tariski, who was an incredible help in getting the audio of those singers from today's episode and helping confirm a million little facts. Also, a big thank you to the Decarceration Collective, CNN, CBS, ABC, NBC, and C-SPAN for the archival audio in today's episode. The show is hosted and produced by Rivet's Jesse Batan. For more info about the show, or to attend one of our many events throughout the year, visit chicagoinnovation.com. 